Hey folks, this is Kevin. Just a few words before we start. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, I hope to Christ he starts this episode by at least saying one or two words about Stamps.com. Well, you're in luck! Because you know what? With summer in full swing, there's lots of places we want to go, but the post office isn't one of them. You know, driving there, parking, waiting for a clerk. What a hassle. So use Stamps.com instead. With Stamps.com, anything you do at the post office, you can do right from your desk. You can buy and print official... Oh, pardon me. You can buy and print official U.S. postage for any envelope, any package, any class of mail. You're just using your own computer and printer. They make it easy and convenient. You'll never have to go to the post office again. We use Stamps.com and we love it. Now, right now, you can use our promo code RISK for this special offer. It's a no-risk trial plus a $110 bonus offer that includes a digital scale and up to $55 free postage. So don't wait. Go to Stamps.com before you do anything else. Click on the microphone at the top top of the homepage and type in risk. That's stamps.com. Enter risk. Now here's the show. Kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and this is Vectroid, behind me now. We're calling today's episode Live from D.C., and oh my gosh, everything I've heard is true. Everyone in New York always says the same thing in the performing arts community. You go down to D.C., they are the most warm and receptive and supportive audiences ever. We took risk down there for the first time last month in June, and uh, holy crap, there's an organization down there called Speakeasy DC. They put on shows once a month, storytelling shows, and they decided to bring us on down there to partner up and do a show together. Oh my gosh, such good people. Amy Sedman is the ringleader, the mastermind behind Speakeasy DC down there, and we are so excited to have a relationship with them. We want to come back as much as we possibly can. Be sure to look them up at speakeasydc.com. They have plenty of videos and audio of their own. Lots of great stuff. So without further ado, let's get right to it. This is Risk, live in D.C. storyteller to the stage so exciting to have him here he has a show in the fringe right now it is called and afterwards please welcome to the stage mr kevin boggs i come from a very small town in tennessee thank you I was raised by a pack of passive-aggressive women. I learned to say things like, Oh, you're wearing that. We were all non-confrontational. We learned, or I learned growing up, when someone was assertive towards you, you just smiled, played the victim, and talked about it later, the proper way, behind their back. <laughs> this did not prepare me well for life. It did, however, prepare me very well for the restaurant industry. 
please, thank you, yes sir, and no ma'am. So in the late 1990s, I found myself waiting tables at the Daily Grill on Connecticut Avenue. Do you know this? This is basically a Fridays for people who make over 100,000 a year. I am in my late 30s and I am waiting on 20 year old somethings that are living the life that I am supposed to have. I'm giving them Cosmos and beers. It's one Friday night and it was really busy and I would go in at 3.30 in the afternoon and the bar would close at 1. Other bars in the neighborhood would stay open later, dust open to 3, but we closed at 1. It was one of those heinous days where, you know, you could everything that I've served was somewhere on my apron or on my body and I smelled like, I don't know, food and beer and sweat and we'd given last call and I was very excited and I'd gone up to all my tables and given them their bills and then these two ladies walk in they're about my age African-American, very well-dressed, very sophisticated like they'd gone out after work and not gone home yet and they came in and they're giggling a little bit and their one kind of stumbles and you realize maybe they've been drinking somewhere else. <laughs> and they sit down and they start waving at me and I come over and I'm like, hello ladies. I'm really sorry, but we've already given last call. And she said, no, 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 please. We need something to drink. So I went over to the bar and I asked the bartender and I pointed the bartender over to them and they waved at the bartender and he's like, no, sorry. <laughs> so I walked back over and I'm like, yeah, I'm really sorry. I, I can't get you anything to drink. Then something happens. She put her hands on her hips. She stood up and she said, is it because I'm black? And I said, no, no, not at all. That has nothing to do with it. She said, then get me a drink. And I'm like, I've already talked to the bartender. We've already given last call. I'm sorry, there's nothing that I can do. Bless your heart. <laughs> and she reared back and said, then I guess you're worthless. And my stomach kind of fell. You know that feeling how you were scolded by your parents growing up? That's, and something kind of snapped in, in my head. And, and I thought I was going to stand up to my, for myself. And I, and I looked at her and I said, you know what? You have to be the rudest person I've ever waited on. And I thought I had crossed a line. <laughs> And she wrote back and she said, Do you think I care what you think about me, you silly faggot? You're probably just angry because I get more dick than you. <clears throat> really? <laughs> faggot? What is this, sixth grade? Is that all you got? Let me explain something. See, that word used to mean something to me when it was called out to me in gym class in high school. That word meant something to me when my uncle used it at Thanksgiving table after I'd come out to the family. That word used to mean something to me when college frat boys screamed it at me in front of my mother. But guess what, sister? I grew up, I left a small town. I moved to the big city. I'm not ashamed of who I am. And if you think your drunk ass is going to come into my house and crack my face. You got another thing coming and let me tell you so you will know and one day your children will know I'm getting all the dick I want. <laughs> that is exactly what I wish I had said. What really happened was... <laughs> I became 18 again. Where my mom and my sister were helping me move into my dorm room. And this car, frat boys, drive by and scream, Go home, faggot! 
and there's that moment where you're embarrassed and then you have to look at your relatives and you're shamed in front of them and then we all act like nothing happened that's what it felt like and I looked up at my other tables and they were looking at me they'd all heard the whole thing had just stopped the dining room and this one man looked at me and kind of shook his head and looked down and she just strode right away she's going towards the door and then something inside me went crazy <laughs> and as she stepped into that revolving glass door I slid right into that compartment with her and stopped it. I had her trapped. And years of being bullied and called names came pouring out of me onto this woman. You think that you can come in here la 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 I know who you are and I make work here every Friday and Saturday night and you're never going to come in here again. You were banned for life. And the thing is I wanted to tell her off, but that thing happens where you get so angry all you start to do is cry. <laughs> And you get to what my mother used to call the hitches. <laughs> so I'm doing this. I kind of want to go butch on her ass, but I'm just all Nelly and shaking, trying to make my point. And at one point, I am done. I've done my duty. And I go to... I have not thought this through. These things do not move backwards. And she leans into me and I can smell the alcohol in her breath and she says, <laughs> I'm a lawyer, I'm gonna own your ass. Watch this. And she starts beating on the glass. He's trying to kill me, he's trying to kill me. So I'm pushing on her and she's pushing on me and people from the bar have started to gather around to watch this. And at one time I gave a big heave old push and the thing moves and we both fall out onto the pavement on Connecticut. I get up and I go back into the restaurant and I go back to the back room where I find the manager's counting his money. And I'm like, um... <laughs> we have a little bit of an incident. This very drunk woman called me a faggot. He's like, oh, that's awful. She's still here? I'm like, yeah, I think so. <laughs> Said, I should go talk to her. That's, that's just completely unacceptable. I'm like, well, mm, mm, mm. <laughs> one more thing. I kind of trapped her in the revolving door <laughs> and told her she was banned for life and said some other stuff I really don't remember. <laughs> he just did a heavy sigh. He goes and he talks to her and I go to my other tables and they're paying their tabs and they are throwing the money at me. <laughs> The manager comes up to me and he positions himself so his back is to her and he's facing me and he starts doing this. Listen, um, she's not going to leave until I fire you, so I'm pretending to fire you right now. I want you to take off your apron and look really upset and, and go to the back of the restaurant. And I'm like, really? Really? And I do it. And the next day I come in and the general manager calls me into a back room. And he has this little write-up form because they didn't think I was being very hospitable. <laughs> Seems like I get a three-day vacation. So I sign all the comments. She better be glad I didn't go all butch on her drunk ass. <laughs> and I take those three days and I get a new job. Because there's something that happens that once you stand up for yourself, it feels good and you continue to do it. Thanks. Storyteller up to the stage. She is the education director for Speakeasy, and she's going to start a class on July 31st, a five-week class. So go to the Speakeasy site if you're interested in taking a storytelling class. And let's welcome her to the stage. She is Stephanie Garibaldi. 
I'm wondering what I'm going to do with my life. As I walk, I yo-yo, I wonder some more. I'm 22, careerless, and I've just journeyed to the Yucatan Peninsula in Mexico to see the pyramids of Chichen Itza, you know, the ones the Mayans built thousands of years ago and are still standing. And I'm walking through this outdoor marketplace next door just trying to figure out what my personal pyramids could be. And I'm yo-yoing, you know, to help me think better. And suddenly there's a tap on my shoulder, and I turn to see this young man, one of the market vendors I'd just passed, and he asks, ¿Qué es eso? Pointing to the yo-yo. I say, oh, a yo-yo. And I put the loop over his finger, and then stand back in awe. As he whips it around the world, he walks the dog, he even rocks the cradle. I'm laughing, I start to walk away and say, you keep it, you're better at that than I am. And he says, wait, I am my tacho, and before I can accept your kind gift, you must agree to come to my home for dinner. And I think, that sounds fair. <laughs> so, I wait while he locks up his silver shop, and then I walk the three miles with him to his Mayan village. And I don't want to offend my champion of free dinner, but I do admit, I didn't think there were still Mayan villages in existence. And he says, oh, sure, we're small but self-sufficient. We keep to the old customs, speaking mostly in Maya. I say, I see, though I don't. And keeping to the old customs sounds ominous to me. I want to ask, are you still sacrificing virgins? <laughs> Not that I have anything to worry about on the virgin front after three years of college. But <laughs> it freaks me out a little. And he's just going on about his village as we're walking, telling me about all the villagers by their careers. You know, there's the butcher, the teacher, all the different kinds of farmers, and the village vet who doubles as the village doctor. Yikes. I'm wondering how he's going to introduce me, since I'm jobless, but it's not a problem. He just says, Mama, I have brought a wonderful guest for dinner. And she envelops me in one of those super big mama bear hugs. And as I'm trying to breathe, she says, I'll set the table for six. And we have the most delicious dinner, wonderful conversation with Itacho's parents, his two sisters. And as it's coming to a close, Itacho cops his plea with his parents, Mom and Dad, can we keep her? And they agree, and I, I find myself with my very own hammock. And it is the first night in that hammock as I sleep that their farm sow is giving birth to 14 healthy piglets, the largest litter ever, and all 18 of the hen's eggs hatch within an hour of the piglets being born. And word spreads fast in this small village, and by the next morning, there's a villager at the door who'd like me to lay my hands on his goat's belly. <laughs> Why? The older sister, Martanya, explains that it's just a Mayan custom for good luck, so I do it, but I'm still confused, and when the door closed, I asked her, so this is a normal Mayan thing? And she said, oh, don't worry about that. Come here, my sister and I want to learn more about you. And they start in with the questions. So is it true that you traveled here alone without an escort? And the other one says, and you are not married? And I say, yes, I came alone and I'm unmarried and I'm only 22. And they're like, 22 and not married. <laughs> and, then, and then they say, well, at least you still might have a chance with our brother because he seems to like you, the first girl he's ever brought home. And I say, oh, no, no, that was just a yo-yo swap thing. That's nothing <laughs> romantic. And, uh, and they say, well, because you walked with him alone and unescorted, you are officially courting. And I'm shocked to learn this. And they go on to explain that normally he would have already presented his intentions to my parents. But since my parents aren't here, it's forgiven. And by the way, don't worry, because he's not concerned about the fact that you're beyond the marrying age. What, I'm what is the marrying age? And they say Mayan women marry between 14 and 16. Uh, our mother married at 14 because she was dying to get out of the house. And apparently, if you're unmarried, you're not supposed to walk unescorted. 
because the theory is that such a temptation would make men just jump out of the bushes and rape and attack you, and they say, is it the same in your country? No, not, not even a little. And after, after I tell them all about my wonderful country, they demand, so you have your own car, you go wherever you want, you live alone? Why would you ever want to get married? a little foolish, I said, well, you know, love? And they just look at me like I'm the saddest person on the earth. <laughs> but then they say, well, maybe you will love our brother. And I said, well, I, I don't know, I have to get to know him. And later that day, I'm secretly watching him out the back kitchen window. And Itacho is there in like a Disney scene. All the animals are around him, like the sheep, the pigs, the chickens, the dogs. Even this old milking cow appears to be nuzzling the back of his neck. And, and I hear right behind me, he has quite a way with the animals, no? It's his mother. Yes, I say, and she says, he is the first in three generations in our village uh, to be an animal whisperer. And she explains that the animals all go to him. They send something in him that we do not. And I'm intrigued. I want to know what the animal sends. And am I not an animal too? And then I feel it. I have to fight the urge to go to him right then. And I just watch and I see how his hands stroke the animals so softly. And I start to wonder what those hands would feel like on me. And meanwhile, over the next week, the villagers are still coming every morning with different animals asking me to lay my hands on their bellies. <laughs> I still don't know what's going on until the seventh morning when one of them in Spanish allows us how he believes me to be a Mayan fertility goddess. <laughs> Clearly it's a mistake, but I can't talk him out of it or any of the villagers out of it. So I kind of go along. It seems like only fair because they're letting me stay in their house for free. So. I continue these Mayan fertility goddess services on a lark. <laughs> and I fill in the rest of my day working in the silver shop alongside Itacho. And so we're spending tons of time together, right? But never once does he give me any indicator of romance. And we talk about everything except for us or if there is an us, you know. And one day he says, as we're heading out to the silver shop, maybe you should bring a bathing suit just in case. Uh, I bring it, not asking any more questions, and when we come home from the silver shop, we stop by the only hotel in the village, which is run by his friend Chango. Chango meets us at the front and says, the guests are all at dinner. You have the pool for one hour to yourselves. Enjoy, amigo. So, I mean, this pool is beautiful, lit up by all the setting sun colors, and we dive in, and we're turning flips, and we chase each other, and as we're swimming alongside each other along the bottom of the pool, I'm thinking, we're just friends, that, that's okay. And then when I come up for air, he's already there, one hand on the back wall, he reaches his other hand out to me, pulls me in close, and all of a sudden, there I am, chest to chest, face to face against the pool wall, and he says, you act as if you don't know it, but you carry with you a piece of my heart, my brain, my very soul, wherever you go. And I'm about to say, what? <laughs> when he kisses me and it's as if a current is going through me and I start to have this irrational thought that we can electrocute ourselves with this current in the water but I don't care it's so good and then he stops and he says I'm sorry we have to go now amor de mi vida love of my life and I follow him out of the pool still in a daze and when we walk home he holds my hand and at dinner that night his mother turns to me and says, will your family come to the wedding? And I say, what wedding? And she says, well, yours and I touch us, of course. Oh my God, she knows. She knows what happened in that pool. She's got spies everywhere. I try to stay calm. I say, um, we haven't really talked about that distant possibility yet. She says nothing more. And things go on like normal, with me working as a fertility goddess by morning, silver shop by day. And the only two things that are different is that when he walks with me, he holds my hand, and he finds these little stolen moments every now and then to pull me to him and kiss me and then let me go. The, 
that in close kiss is his only move, <laughs> But it's enough, because it's so thrilling and dangerous. And then, once I've been there a little over six months, I get a note from him. Secret note, like he'd pass in high school. And it says, meet me on the rooftop tonight at midnight. Yeah, right? So I go, and I, I mean, midnight cannot come soon enough. I get up there, he's already there. He again pulls me in his embrace. He says, thank you, I couldn't wait any longer. But then he does the same kiss as always and lets me go. And I'm thinking, oh, okay, I guess this is it. And it's not gonna go any further. Maybe that's for the best. But then he starts to kiss me on the back of my neck. And as I melt and close my eyes, I don't see that he's unbuttoning the front of my shirt until my shirt is on the floor and as I'm looking down like it's just left from my shoulders, trying to figure this out, I feel his hand on the back of my bra. And that's gone the way of the shirt, too. And suddenly, I'm half naked. And so then, just in fairness, I pull off his t-shirt. And then he lays me down on these blankets he's put up on the roof. And we lay side by side, and he says, I want to see where you keep my heart. A little cheesy, but it worked. <laughs> <And> he, <laughs> he runs his fingers down my throat and my chest, and his lips are following, and he's kissing me everywhere. And I am having an out-of-body experience, people. <gasps> Logic has left my body, and is standing over me, making these snarky comments like, well, he really knows his way around a girl's body for my inversion. I don't care. The animal part of me is left behind and I'm all his and I am moaning and trying to get logic to shut up. And then before I know it, our pants are gone. And the next thing, and I don't know how I did it or when it happened, and I don't care. I am giving myself to this Mayan fiance in a very un-Mayan way. <laughs> and it is good. And then he rolls around his back and he pulls me atop of him and lowers me down on him. And when I say him, I mean his penis. <laughs> and it is good and right and everything. And I try to block out logic altogether who's saying something about not having a condom on. And I just let myself concentrate fully on that circular motion and the build, and then Zowie, we erupt, like both together, just like I've read about romance novels, but never experienced. And then I'm lying in strong arms, thinking, yeah, I know why the animals come to you. <laughs> and the stars are beautiful, because they're unhampered by street lamps. But then, it's as if the sky is closing in, like the eyes of the villagers are on me, and I feel this contempt. And suddenly, it's coming over me, and I just say, I have to go to the bathroom. And I get up, and I run down two flights of stairs to the bathroom. I lock the door, and I slide down against it, and I start crying. And I am not a crier, okay? And I am weeping full out. And I don't know why. I mean, I've had sex before. Maybe not that good, but I've had it. And I don't understand why this sadness is coming over me. And then, then I understand, then I get it. It's like because I've been living with Mayans for six months. And he's been there his whole life, and this is not their way. And I have been disrespected, and I feel terrible. And then I hear him pounding on the door, and he's saying, Stephanie, I can hear you crying. Let me in. Let me help you. But I just cry more, and he's getting more desperate. I'll bang the door down. Open the door, please. Let me help you. So finally, I don't want him banging down the door. So I unlock it. And he comes in. He takes one look at my tear-stained face. And he says, oh, I'm so sorry. I didn't know. I, I thought because you were American that you weren't a virgin. I'm so sorry I took it from you. And he hugs me as tenderly as anyone ever hugged anybody. And he lets me go. And he looks at my eyes, and he says, can you forgive me? And I nod, just in the spirit of the thing, without thinking that I'm sort of now confirming this wrong impression that he's stolen my virginity. And I'm really not about the deceit, but I go to try to tell him nothing to forgive, and he says, no. I swear I will respect you forever, and I will not try anything again until our wedding night. 
So he's true to his word, unlike me. And he gives me this chaste kiss on the forehead. And we both sneak back to our respective hammocks. The next night at dinner, right before, the parents say, we have a surprise for you. And they walk us a few streets downtown, and they show us this house that is being built. And the father says, this is our property too, and we are having a house built for you as a wedding gift. And the mother says, yes, and you see all the rooms, so you can have plenty of children. <laughs> my knees turn liquid. I see spots in my eyes, and I have to sit down in the street. And as they're crouching over me, seeing if I'm okay, all I can think of is, in this parallel universe, everything is figured out. I have a career as a fertility goddess and silver shopper. <laughs> I'm about to have a husband, and then I'll be pumping out kids and probably a lot to keep up my rep as a fertility goddess. And what's worse is they'll be delivered by a vet as opposed to a doctor, and it'll probably be about the benefit of drugs unless I can talk him into some horse tranquilizers or something. You know, if I go back to my universe, nothing's figured out, but maybe that's not so bad. And if any of you have ever been at a party with somebody who suddenly decides they're not having a good time and they do one of these, oh wow, look at the time, gotta run. Well, that's how I got out of Mexico. <laughs> I basically said, oh, look at that visa expiration date. Sorry, gotta run. But I'll be back in a gym once it's cleared up. And it was BS, because at the time, any American, as long as you want to stay in Mexico, you can stay in Mexico, especially if you're bringing those gringo dollars. It may be different now, but then it didn't matter. So it was bullshit. I hope they didn't know it. But, uh, and then I left really abruptly. It was actually two days after the sex, one day after the new home. <laughs> and, um, and I had the entire family at the bus stop to see me off, and half the village, really. And everyone was saying their goodbyes, and Itacho was the last goodbye. And when he hugged me, he whispered, you're not coming back, are you? And I couldn't lie. I said, no, I'm sorry. And then I said for the first time, I love you, but if I stayed in this world, it would be just for you, and I've, I've got to go back to my own world. But maybe you'll come to Maryland? <laughs> I said, no, I don't think I could leave my world behind either. And he pulled me in close, gave me a kiss, and let me go. And like a yo-yo with a string break, I went flying off and never looked back. Stephanie accidentally somehow ended up in a Gabriel Garcia Marquez novel. <laughs> I'd like to bring our next storyteller up to the stage. Uh, she also has a show at the Fringe right now, and it is called 8th Street Housewives. Please welcome Jenny Splitter! I'm a highly compartmentalized person. So I feel like when I think about the different parts of my life, it's like a place for everything and everything in its place. So when I'm in mom mode, you know, I'm a particular way. You know, I don't like for my son to use words like fart or booger. And if my two-year-old daughter passes gas and laughs about it, I'm, I'm really horrified. I'm kind of that mom. And I feel like that mom does not have sex. Or, okay, she has sex, but it's like perfunctory, missionary position, 2.3 kids just get the job done kind of sex, you know? And so when I'm in mom mode, I feel like that's the me that I want people to see, you know, my kids' teachers or the checkout guy at Trader Joe's or the other moms at the playground. And I am that mom, but I'm not just that mom because I have a secret. So when people ask me where I met my husband, I always say we met through friends, and that is a lie. <laughs> we met online, and I would really love to be able to say we met through eHarmony, but it was not that website. Um, and this is the first time I've ever said this out loud in public, so deep breath. 
So the site where we met uh, is called CollarMe.com. And if you can't figure that out, um, it's a site for people who are into BDSM or kink. And so I keep this part of me like pretty well hidden for most people, especially other moms. But the funny thing is, I kind of discovered this part of myself because of a group of moms. Okay. So my best friends in the world are this group of moms, my naughty mom friends. And we've been through everything with each other. Like I got through my divorce to my first husband with these women, okay? And we can get together and talk about anything. Like anything from breastfeeding to anal sex. Because what kind of connects us is that we all have these desires, different desires, but that are taboo for one reason or another. So I could like wonder aloud, you know, what it might be like to be tied up or spanked or that scene in Mad Men where Don Draper's on the chair and the mistress is on the floor. Anyone? Anyone? Okay. <laughs> YouTube it later, okay? So, okay, so after a few of these conversations, you know, I, I did my own like online research and I discovered that there are these BDSM groups in DC and they all have a happy hour where you can go and like, it's a casual setting, everyone's got their clothes on stuff, you can, you can meet other <laughs> kinksters in a bar. And so one day I, I get up the nerve to go to this happy hour, right? And I make my way up the stairs to like the private room in this bar where it's held. And I'm really, really like freaked out and nervous. And this guy comes up to me and he is the official greeter of the group. And he says, oh, hey, I'm Brian and I'm submissive. My wife over there, she's dominant. We play with other people, but we don't have sex with other people. But that's just our choice and everyone's welcome. And he says it just like that. like super casual and I'm in the fetal position because this is the first time I've ever heard anyone talk about kinky sex like out loud you know in in public um, but eventually I became more comfortable and a couple weeks later I had my first play session with the dominant woman I met at happy hour and I had some other play sessions with some other people including you know the man I'm now married to and I went to some parties and I went to some crazy fantastical events like kinky summer camp where there's a dungeon and workshops taught by a porn star and lighting Shabbat candles with my fellow kinky Jews. <laughs> and a human petting zoo. There is everything and anything you could possibly imagine and you just feel totally free. But I had trouble kind of making sense of these two different parts of myself. You know, I felt like on Saturday night, I'm pouring myself into a latex dress, and on Monday, I'm delivering two dozen Batman-themed cupcakes to my son's preschool class. <laughs> so I started seeing a therapist. <laughs> and I was really nervous to talk about this with a therapist, okay? So I show up the first day, and I'm all, like, flustered and freaked out. And I spilled coffee outside the office door. So I go inside, you know, and apologize, introduce myself. And she's like this open, serene, like almost spiritual woman. So the exact opposite of me. And she sits me down and says, okay, so how did you want to deal with the spill? <laughs> well, can you get someone to clean it up? No, 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 I mean, how did you think you and I should deal with this spill. I mean, can we get someone to clean it up? Or I could, I could, I could pay you? I don't know. No, 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 what I'm trying to say is, you can bring your messes here and it's okay. Messes, yeah. I don't have messes, I have compartments. And you know, she kind of laughed and she said, okay, but just something to keep in mind. It's just a little spill. Nobody died. And she was right, nobody died. But I, I felt like in the past, um, when I hadn't kept these parts of myself like really neatly separated, that it had gotten messy, you know? And I don't like messes. So there was this one time, a few months before I'd gone to this first happy hour, where I'm hanging out with my naughty mom friends, and um, we are drinking and talking and talking and drinking, and one of my friends, who is an artist, gets two crazy ideas in her head. Okay, so first she decides she would like to draw me in the nude in charcoal. And then also because she's a mom, she's always multitasking, 
she would like to auction off that drawing at a neighborhood fundraiser for her walkathon. <laughs> right. And um, I'm not so sure about that. <laughs> but my friend is like trying to convince me. She's like, baby, you are beautiful. You've got to celebrate your post-baby body. What do you have to be ashamed of anyway? And I thought, well, okay, like it's gonna be in charcoal, like fuzzy, you know, anonymous. And um, I'm in this period of sexual discovery now, so right. Like, what do I have to be ashamed of? And also, I'm just gonna say, I'm not the only kinky mom in this group, okay? So my friend can be kind of persuasive. And she said, okay, great, drop your clothes, get on the bed, I'm just gonna take a few photographs and I'll draw you later. Okay. So um, a couple weeks later at the fundraiser, it turned out that those anonymous fuzzy charcoal drawings never actually happened. No, three lovely, absolutely lovely photographs of me, buck naked, hung on the wall at the fundraiser, sandwiched in between Kathy's hand-knit socks and Trisha's mother-daughter birthstone jewelry. My post-baby body was indeed celebrated with all the neighborhood moms and dads. And so I'm telling this story to my therapist one day, right? And, and I'm asking the thing that I always ask, which is like, okay, do I have a healthy sense of privacy or like a shameful sense of secrecy? And, and what's the difference? And how do you know? And I'm getting all worked up and animated and using my hands. And all of a sudden I grab my coffee cup way too quickly and it explodes everywhere, like all over the office, okay? It's on the carpet, it's on the couch, it's on the chair, and most importantly, it's all down my body. And I'm like yelping, yelping in pain, and I'm also thinking, oh, this woman knows I like pain and I hope she doesn't think I'm secretly enjoying this, because I'm not. I'm totally, totally not. <laughs> and also it's like, God, this is what happens when I let these compartments out. It's just a big mess, and it's really not okay. So eventually I stopped seeing the therapist, um, and I just like never really resolved this, this you know, whole question of, of privacy and, and secrecy. Um, but life went on, you know, I got married again, and my husband and I had a baby together, and I kind of became less active in the kink scene, because I felt like, well, we have two kids, and one's a toddler, and... It just became very easy to hide all evidence that I'm kinky. But that honestly never felt quite right either, especially in the last like year or so since I've been telling stories. And I feel like, you know, everyone I meet is like so brutally honest about themselves. And I've got this part of me that's like walled off, you know? So a couple months ago, I'm talking to a fellow storyteller and um, a friend, and she's She's wondering about this event that goes on like every year in DC, this kinky event uh, called Winterfire. And she's going like, what is this? And who goes? What kind of workshops do they teach anyway? And I'm sitting there thinking, well, introduction to bondage, how to use a single tail. And I find myself compelled, okay, to blurt out, I have been there. I have been there. And it felt like super weird and anxious and uh, that's how I felt all day today and right now telling this story to all of you, but I did it. <laughs> and I appear to still be breathing, so I guess my therapist was right. Nobody died. Nobody died. Thank you, and I'm gonna go get a drink now. Jenny and I were discussing her story when we realized uh, we've been to the same events. <laughs> and you know, she might not like it, but I'm sure somewhere out there in the world there's someone who's really into coffee spilling king. <laughs> I'd like to bring up our final storyteller. It's such an honor to bring her up here. She is the director of Speak Easy DC. And so it's been so great to work with her. Um, and yeah, it's just been a, a lovely little partnership we seem to have started here. So please welcome to the stage, Amy Setman. So I'm on the phone with my sister. We're having a perfectly lovely conversation until something sets us off. And something 
always sets us off. Some kind of debate over who said what. So, so I don't know, it was something like, Debbie, I told you I could be there Sunday, not Saturday. And she's like, no, no, no. You definitely said Saturday. No, Debbie, I did not say Saturday. I said Sunday. And don't start making up facts just to fit what works for you. And she goes, Amy, so help me, God. And it starts. And she's just like, rah! And I'm not listening. It just sounds like a car alarm at this point. It's like, wah, 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 wah. And I'm just like, God damn it. And I'm thinking, I just start to wander, you know? And I think, you know, she's hated me from day one. <laughs> she had two blissful years as the only child, and then I came along. I mean, I can't blame her. I was, I was really adorable. <laughs> and uh, my parents obviously loved me more, too. So I can't blame her. But she has lorded these extra two years over me for my entire life. So when we were younger, like, she... Back then, there were all these like crime-fighting hot duos, like male duos, and she would always claim the hotter one. If she claimed the hotter one, like I, it was off the table for me. Like the guy was off the market, so I'd always have just like her B-list, you know, leftovers. So if she took Hutch, I got Starsky with the bouffant. If he, if she took, um, she took Poncharelli, I got John. She took Lacey, I got Cagney. You know, it was just. I just got the leftovers, and you know, for the Dukes, she took both Bo and Lou. Which left me with Boss Hog and Uncle Jesse. Okay, not cool. And when it came to clothes, oh my god, I don't know. You know, when you're a teenager, that's the most important thing in the world to you is your clothes. But somehow, she had free reign over my closet. And I had rules. So I'd, I'd maybe pick a shirt, she'd be like, Annie, you can't wear that. That's my favorite. But I thought the purple one was your favorite. She'd be like, uh, duh, that was yesterday. I'd be like, okay, fine, I'll wear the purple one. She'd be like, no, Amy, you know the rules. I need to wear it five times. Worked every time. Like, I just, I was like, I relented, and I could never figure out how to, like, enforce the same rules on her. So she just, she just always, always had the upper hand. And here we were again, we were in our 30s, grown women. She got three grown kids, I'm running a business, and we are still fighting, and I'm listening to wah, 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 and I'm just thinking, you know what, I don't, this is so, this is ridiculous, I don't want to listen to this, which is when, <laughs> I hung up on my sister, oh my god, I hung up on my sister, and I thought, yeah, I hung up on my sister, that's right, and I felt fantastic. I suddenly felt like a superhero. I was like, why didn't I do this a long time ago? No one died. <laughs> and that was that, it worked. We never talked about it again. So I was like, all right, all right. I need to do this when I see her. Like if something happens and we're in person and she's yelling at me, I can't hang up, but I can walk away. I can look her in the eye turn on my heels, show her my back, and with grace and dignity, walk away. You know, like in the movies, like, like, like the hero blows something up, and then they just turn around and they're just like, yeah, that's right, I just blew some shit up. <laughs> I'm gonna take my time to walk away. I'm not gonna look back, because I've seen a fire before. I don't look back. Exactly how it was going to play out. She was going to yell, I'd walk away, the, the camera would pan, the music would swoon, and everybody would cheer for the underdog. So this opportunity came soon after this resolution. And we were both at my parents' house because it was the morning of my aunt's funeral. Yes, it was my aunt's funeral. And we actually had, had a, a, a lovely night before. We spent the night in the same room, in the same bed, and we were getting along just fine till the morning. I had to get up a half hour early. I had to walk the dog. And you know, I really did want her to get her sleep. Like I said, she had three kids. She needed her sleep. And so I kind of tiptoed. I got up. I tiptoed around. And I was just going to make my way out without disturbing her until I realized I didn't have the leash. And the leash was buried somewhere down in, inside my suitcase or something. So, 
I'm like, all right. So I weighed my options. There's like an overhead light. I'm like, no, nah, I'm not going to turn the overhead light on because because I couldn't see anything because that'll wake her up. So, oh, there's a side light. I'll just do the side light. That'll be like gentle. And so I click the light. And like my sister rose like a fire-breathing <laughs> demon. She was like, Okay, right? I mean, the night before, 
we had actually had a very intense and very, in a way, beautiful night. We were together at my aunt's bedside when she died. We were there watching her suffer, watching her take her last gargled breaths as her great-granddaughter sobbed by her side and said goodbye. I mean, it was, I have never been by the side of someone, you know, as they pass this life. And it's very intense and it's very emotional. And I was with my sister and I, I was filled with so much love for her that night. And I was like, there is nobody I want to be there with besides her, you know? Like, we are the fruit of the same tree. You know, the things that we believe in, our values, our perspectives, our, the people that matter in our lives, the things that anchor us to this world, really largely come from the same place. She's my sister. There is no one else that shares this with me. And, uh, you know, and I was also thinking about how much I so trust her, like, with the decisions we may have to make about our own parents, life and death decisions, and how much I trust her with the decisions she may make, need to make about me and my life, and how I trust those decisions in her hands. I mean, we may argue over little things, but when it comes to big things, she's always there. She's always there to listen when I'm struggling, send me herbs, too many, when I'm sick, <laughs> be my champion when I need one. I mean, that's true, it's, it's true. So I just felt like, you know, the night, just the night before, I just had this strong feeling that, about how much I need her to see me through this life. So I make my way I open out of the back room to go upstairs and get dressed, and I'm resolved to make this one offer to her. Fine, you can have Don Draper, and I will take the sweaty British accountant. This episode, folks, this is Paula and Carol behind me now. On the 25th of July, uh, 2013, Risk is in New York City with Dan Kennedy of The Moth, and we are in Los Angeles that same night at the Nerd Melt with Jay Moore. On the 29th of August, we are in Austin, Texas, and we need you, folks of Austin, to be pitching us your stories to be potentially included in that show. So write to me at kevin at risk-show.com. Don't forget to be checking and rechecking thestorystudio.org to find out what workshops we're offering next in New York City. And if you're not in New York City, we always have one-on-one -on -one Skype coaching available, as well as our Storytelling for Business video lecture course. We custom tailor workshops for staffs of businesses, and we do six-week, two-day, and one-day workshops here in New York. Never forget to pitch us your stories. If you have them, we are at risk-show.com slash submissions. And follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Risk Show. You can follow me on Twitter at TheKevinAllison. And keep in mind that the free episodes of Risk that are on iTunes are not all the episodes of Risk that exist. The original classic episodes, the first episodes, are available in the album section of iTunes for 99 cents each. There's no commercials in those, and they're completely remastered. 
You can also find our all-star episodes there in the album section of iTunes. Just go there and search for Risk. And don't forget that Risk is a proud member of the Maximum Fun Network, and we are listener-supported. The way to help keep this whole thing running is to go to MaximumFun.org slash donate and make a one-time donation or become a member of Maximum Fun. It's a wonderful organization producing so many of the very best podcasts out there. So go to MaximumFun.org slash donate and be sure to earmark your contribution for risk. That leaves about one thing left to say. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. we were, the way we'll be, the way we learn eventually, the paths we cross, the seven seas, the way these lines end perfectly. This is the egg that's at the end of the show, and if you're hearing this right now, You know there ain't no more.